Welcome back, Jules and Indian podcast listeners. This is Anju. Pooja. And Miranda. Um, this is our first official episode of season two, and it is Thanksgiving, so happy Thanksgiving, guys. Happy, happy Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving! Whatever that means. <laughs> <laughs> we hope that you guys are stuffing yourselves full of delicious food and surviving whatever awkward family or friend interactions you have to deal with. Unless you're one of those people that come from wholesome families where you get along and have mutually satisfying conversations where you each have really incredibly humane views in which all people are seen. That's and not if, a thing. Whatever. And if not, please confront your racist uncle. <laughs> <laughs> yes, please confront your racist uncle. <laughs> so in addition to being the week of Thanksgiving, we also know that November is Native American Heritage Month, mm. something we realized last month when we were doing our Indigenous Peoples Day. So we wanted to take this opportunity to talk about Native American tribes so that's what we're doing today. I picked the Hopi tribe. Instead of starting with Hopi Indians on Uncle Google, I went to nativeappropriations.com, a blog started by Dr. Adrian Keene, who is a native activist. I wanted to start with somebody who's directing the conversation from a place of knowledge and, and care. So that's why I started with native appropriations. And then from there, I did a Google News search on the Hopi trap to see what's in the news now. And, and this is the one and only time that procrastination actually paid off because there was something on the 20th that, <laughs> <laughs> that directed the rest of my research. They are, quote unquote, descendants of the Anasazi tribe. And the Anasazi themselves are thought to be migrants from the Mexican Aztecs. I bring this up because one of the coolest things I saw when looking at these pictures was that the Hopi women had the independistas, the Mexican freedom fighters who were women, had the buns on the side of their head, which as we all know is the symbol of Princess Leia. <laughs> <laughs> so that to me, I was just like, oh my God, it's American. <laughs> <laughs> The pictures were cool. Another thing that while I was looking through was there was a picture of a Hopi man and Hopi woman from, I cannot remember the tribe, and they were dressed like a Raja and Rani in a black and white photo, like up to the, like the collar and the, the padded suit with the, she was wearing a, a, like a sari wrap on her head and, and really big jewelry. And I'm like, we're all connected and Pangea was a thing and we can get back to that if we really want to. So awesome. that's one of the things I learned. The other thing I learned is that the Orabai is the longest existing native village in North America. Wow. Yeah. So since about the 1150 AD, or CE, if you're into Common Era, mm -hmm. it's located in northeast Arizona. And there's also the Walpi village in the same area that it's like a historic, it's like Jamestown. You can go there and see, um, you know, Orbi and so look at the ruins and things like that. And I do apologize if I'm mispronouncing any words. One of the most interesting things about the Hopi and is very resonant today, metaphors, 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 is that being seen as their own sovereign nation, they made contracts and treaties with the Spaniards in the 16th century and then with the Mexicans in the 19th century to keep their land, okay, and run it as their own nation. And then in the post-Mexican-American War environment in 1848, is when we have decades and decades of fighting with the U.S. government versus this native tribe. And so in 1870, it only took 22 years to defy the treaty. They pretty much forced the Native Americans to tract 
their land. So where it was one big parcel for the tribe, for the clan, because, you know, with Pueblo, Native American tribes, they live in villages made of Pueblo, right? And so they force them to tract their land. And what do you mean by tract? Tract, like break them up into tracts. It's okay. not one big tribal land. It's This belongs to... A specific person. A specific person. This was part of an American government initiative to go from reservations to assimilation. Yes. By basically sort of forcing them... From there, the Hopis were... No. <laughs> no, you're not doing this. <laughs> and that's one of the things they are known for. Hopi actually means peaceful people. They basically... There's accounts that say... We just want to be left alone by the white man. Like we, we're covered. We got, we got stuff. We, we, we're good. And that didn't happen. So what happened in 1870 was that they, for, like you were saying, Andrew, they forced assimilation by taking kids from the reservation and sending them to boarding schools 40 miles away from the reservation and separating parent from child that way, forcibly. And then you look at the pictures of these schools and these children were all dressed like British boarding schools and Northeastern boarding schools in American clothes. The pictures, their faces were absolute misery. They were not allowed to speak in their native languages. Does this sound like missionaries and colonialism to you? Oh, absolutely. Of, you know, just a smidge. Just a smidge. They were beaten. I, I ran across a story about a Navajo woman who her great grand uncle was turned up missing at the school, so they made the army exhume three bodies. And they two of the three people who they wanted to verify were buried in the school were from that tribe and were taken home. But instead of the little boy they were looking for, there were two other unidentified people in the coffin, and they just reburied it. Jesus. That was in 2000, like, recent. What the Hopis called it was the Washington Way. That's what was being taught. The assimilation was the Washington Way. So 19 Hopi men from various clans in the tribe in Northeast Arizona were just like, you ain't doing this to our kids. You are not doing this to our kids. So they did not let their kids go to school. They were like, don't get on whatever. No, stay home with us. We have a way of life. Those men were arrested and sent to Alcatraz in January 3rd until August 7th of whatever year they were arrested in. And I'm sorry, it'll be in the show notes. So <laughs> Alcatraz at that time was not a private prison. It was a military prison. So they arrested wow. <clears throat> Native men who were asserting, you know, homeschooling rights that are very assertable by evangelicals today for their kids and were sent to military prison. Basically the equivalent, contemporary equivalent of uh, Guantanamo. Guantanamo. Yeah. Right. So, and the other thing um, Hopis are known for are the Kachina dolls. And this I found interesting one other Pueblo tribe is known for Kachina dolls. I think it's called the, the Zuni. I'm not sure Zuni. Uh, but the Kachina dolls basically tell their origin story. And there's this one prophecy about the coming of the blue Kachina. And when it comes and it takes its mask off, it's like the day of purity. It's like, you know, and I'm like, what else does Christianity steal? So, mm. um, so basically, I'm going to read it for you. The blue star Kachina makes an appearance in the heavens, and that's when the fifth world will emerge, according to Hopi theology we are in the fourth world the world of man so every time a new world start starts there's a new creature on earth type of thing and this is the year the fourth world is the world of man in the fifth world 
Blue Kachina comes back and then everything, I don't know what this, end of time starts, I guess. Oh, you mean there's a second coming story somewhere else other than Christianity? Yes. It is a matrilineal society. The women can hold property and own the homes. And when it's time for, I thought this was funny, when it was time for a marriage to occur, a potential bride will go to the potential husband's house and for three days will grind corn or maize or something like that. I don't know what that proves. It's the same thing like anthropologically to me as an outsider from this society. It sounds like the same thing of Chinese foot binding where the more petite the foot is. So it's just like the more corn you can you well, can know. It sounds like it's like proving your domestic ability. Right. So you could yeah. you could be a good wife, right? <laughs> right. So that was that. But while she was doing that, the ma- the potential groom and his male family members had to weave the wedding clothes. Mm. Both sets. For the bride and the groom. Sounds fine by me. Yeah, and when she leaves, God, you better hope he's a good weaver. But you're lucky because Hopi, in the Hopi society, men were encouraged to learn basket weaving and cloth weaving. So, nice. so we have that. Um, the other thing I thought was interesting was that the, in one of the cave paintings, they had a picture of a swastika in one of the prophecy paintings. And I was like, once again, The Pangea Society, I know we all know existed, can again. And then one more thing, most the thing that got on my last nerves that is still itching my soul. In 1974, Congress passed the Navajo Hopi Land Settlement Act. And what that did was it attempted to resolve a conflict between the Hopis and the Navajos as to who owned 1.9 million acres of a reservation that they were forced onto in Northeast Arizona. So the act, I cannot stop laughing because it's just ridiculous. The act said that lands partitioned by either tribe will be held in trust by the United States government for that tribe. So they don't own the reservation we shoved them on because of this act from 1974. I don't know what that means for land rights. I'm not a land attorney. And even then, if, even if I was, like, it is complicated by Native American law. Like, you have to specialize in that because they are their sovereign nations. And so, to me, we just keep bamboozling these people. I guess my, I kind of thought that's what all the reservations were. I don't, I could be totally wrong about this, but I don't think any of the Native American tribes actually own specifically. Like, they're granted the, the land for the reservation. Because yeah, they're federally recognized. I'm not entirely really, sure. Like, it's basically... <clears throat> but they're uh, a sovereign nation. It's we're... word salad for we're stealing your shit. I've got a flip side of that that you're going to love when we get to my stories. But two things I wanted to touch on real quick about what you were saying. Um, you are talking about the Hopi being the descendants of the Anasazi. And I, I looked them up because I was thinking about doing them. Mm-hmm. And... I learned that they don't like the term Anasazi because apparently that term comes from the Navajo language, who were their ancient enemies, and it literally means ancient enemy. Oh, my God. And so they prefer ancient Puebloans for oh, that, that tribe. I love it. I learned Good something now. So I thought that was cool. And also, you just mentioned Alcatraz, and what was interesting, that reminded me of, apparently there was an occupation of Alcatraz by Native American tribes. They called themselves Indians of all tribes. There were 89 of them. And it lasted for 19 months from November 20th, 1969 to June 11th, 1971. And they basically wanted to buy the island of Alcatraz back from the U.S. government for buttons and like a red cloth, which apparently is what they were paid for the island of Manhattan back in the day. And they were like, we'll give you that back. Give us this island Mm -hmm. and we're going to make this 
an educational center and a home for Native American people. They failed, obviously, but that was a, a thing that happened in the late 60s, early 70s with Alcatraz. So they were kind of trying to take it back and, and make it a, a place for them. The Hopis were also people of prophecy. I think there, I read a lot about prophecies and future telling with them more than I read about, you know, maybe, the neat stuff. You know, maybe I would have read about the Arapaho or the Cherokee. But one of the things they did was they would have dreams that would tell them certain things they needed to do. And one of the things that they prayed about, I think in the 1930s, was to speak to a group of other people other leaders to get them to believe something. I cannot remember what it was. This was two o'clock in the morning. <laughs> what it translated to in the real life was them going to speak before the UN about conservation issues. So, and that's one of the other things I noticed. I read uh, the Tutu Veni and the Navajo Hopi Observer. And any other newsletter I came across in my, um, in my research and, you know, a lot of the media points to conservation. You know, all the things they push out is protector stuff, conservation stuff. You know, this new law, these new applications, this new form, this new tribal thing. Rarely did I see anything about, you know, Putin and Trump. And I'm like, maybe I should subscribe to these newspapers. They come out, <laughs> one of them comes out the first, the Navajo Hopi Observer comes out the first and third Tuesday of every month. And I'm just like, I'll read about this. And one of the other things that kind of sort of, you know, worried me was, well, worried me in the sense that I'm always worried. How is Betsy DeVos affecting Native American education? Because a lot of the bulletins of the newspapers that I saw were about, you know, fundraising efforts for education centers, fundraising efforts for scholarships. And I'm just like, well, what is she doing right now? I need, I need to know. That's something I took away from learning about the Hopi. So I have more research to do. Cool. That's what I learned. Awesome. Aren't you? Okay, so I kind of cheated. <laughs> we were supposed to talk about one tribe. And when we decided this, because we talked about doing a native tribe, I was, gonna, I was like, okay, I'm going to find a native Texan tribe that still exists because we talk about the Indians too often as if they are past tense. So that's what, that's what I told myself I was going to do. And I started my research, and I realized really quickly that that was impossible because there are only three federally recognized Indian tribes, Native American tribes in Texas, and none of them are originally from Texas. They were all basically forced here. For by Andrew Jackson? Not all of them. Ugh. Not usually by Andrew Jackson, but, <laughs> but yes, by the Spanish, by whatever white people were around, essentially, they were forced into other places. So the three tribes that are here currently are the Alabama Cushada, who have a reservation in East Texas, the Kickapoo, who, the Kickapoo story is kind of amazing, but there's not a lot of information, so I couldn't really do this specifically, but they originated in, like, Michigan and Ohio. Like, they just kept getting relocated and pushed further and further and further, and mm -hmm. now they essentially are, like, bordering Texas and Mexico. <laughs> like, that's how far they got pushed. Well, they avoided the snow. <laughs> True that. <laughs> um, and then the third one is the, um, they're, they were originally called the Tiwa Indians, but they're now called the Isleta del Sur Pueblo, and they're Puebloan Indians um, related to the Hopi, and they're in, like, the El Paso area. So those are the only three tribes that, that are federally recognized. So every other tribe that's native to Texas either is no longer here or are not federally recognized. So that was kind of amazing to me. Mm -hmm. So based on that, 
Um, I started amazing in a horrifying yeah, way. Yeah, yeah, horrifying yeah. in it, in its own right. Like none of the the tribes that are actually from here are still here. So that got me thinking. Of, I started started to research the Caddo tribe. The Caddo Indians were in in East Texas, and I wanted to research them because we get the the name of Texas from their word, um, which is. Taisha, which means friend, which is something every Texan kid is taught in elementary school. Um, but the Caddo tribe, native to Texas, no longer here. They actually are on a reservation in Oklahoma. <laughs> I've been sighing a lot yeah. so far. And the reason that they were, they're no longer here is that when Texas was a republic, there was a policy of basically moving all the tribes that they decided were not, didn't really have a claim oh to Texas God. out of Texas. And so they were relocated first to an Indian territory, an Indian reservation in Texas, and then out of Texas altogether into Indian territory, which is, of course, now Oklahoma. So that's where they are. The only tribe that managed to avoid this was the Alabama Cushado, the one one of those tribes that's still here. And for some reason, the Texas Texas Republic liked them and protected them. And I think part of the reason for that is what I was reading. They actually Alabama Cushado is actually two different tribes: the Alabama tribe and the Cushado tribe, who are actually called uh, the Coasati. That was their real name. There are two related tribes that came from Alabama and. Georgia, Tennessee, that whole area, and got pushed into Texas. And the Cushada tribe actually helped during the Texas Independence War. Like, Sam Houston sent representatives to negotiate with them, essentially to keep them from siding with Mexico. And they both agreed. Mm. The Alabama tribe was like, cool, we'll just stay neutral. We're just going to go into Louisiana for a while. Let us know when this shit is over. We'll come back. <laughs> um, and the Cushada tribe actually stayed and helped. And... That might be why they had goodwill that protected them. But Mirabu Lamar, who Texas history kids know, was the second president after Sam Houston of the Republic of Texas. And he actually issued a proclamation. And he was the one that was the primary driver of relocating Indian tribes. But he was actually the one who issued a proclamation specifically protecting them. And he appointed an agent to help them like help manage their relationship with the with the settlers so that there was any conflicts that they wouldn't it wouldn't turn violent to try and keep them in in a friendly position go figure so that figured it was more strategic than goodwill i mean it's still kind of strange but the thing i really wanted to talk to you about this is just an example of the kind of thing that every native american tribe has dealt with but the Alabama Cushada had, they were federally recognized back in 1928, I think, which is when the federal government bought them some land for the tribes. And by this point, they had consolidated onto one reservation together. And in 1953, the U.S. decided that they weren't going to do this protecting Native American tribes thing anymore. And so they, they decided that they were going to pass a resolution to terminate trust relationships with the Indians within the ter territorial limits of the United States. And end, this is the code, ending their status as wards. Like they were doing the Indians a favor, like the Indians were, you know, a burden on the state and they, and they weren't, didn't want to have to be responsible for that anymore. So that's what they decided. And when they decided this, the Texas state government chose to get involved. The Texas legislature adopted a resolution that they would on behalf of the state of Texas that they would transfer the trust lands from the U.S. 
provided that the tribe consented. So like they were helping them and the tribe voted and they, they agreed. Uh, the vote was like 59 to zero in favor of having Texas take over the trust. This won't end well. This relationship. So they agreed. The governor of Texas in 1953 wrote to the assistant secretary of the interior um, asking, saying that the tribe wanted them, wanted that trust responsibility to be transferred to the state of Texas. So in 54, Eisenhower signed that the law that terminated the trust relationships and everything got transferred. The, the land itself was transferred to the, to the state of Texas to be held in trust for the tribe by Texas. So less than 30 years later, in 1981, what happens is this game warden catches a Native American dressing a deer, like field dressing a deer that he'd shot and killed on tribal lands. And he asked him for his hunting license. And the guy's like, I don't have one. These are my lands. What are you talking about? He's like, you know, I don't, I don't have one. What are you talking about? This is like, we're, we're, we're hunting on our own land. And so the warden cites him and confiscates his deer. And during this conversation, that Native American, whose name was Lyndon Alec, happened to mention that another guy, another Native American tribal member, had also just shot a deer and was field dressing it. So the warden runs over there, asks that guy for his hunting license, which again, he does not have because he's on tribal lands, cites him and confiscates his deer as well. So they decided to fight this, right? Because what the hell? They shouldn't need a license to, to hunt on their own reservation. So they fight this. The court dismisses the case in their favor after hearing basically that the government never had it enforced this kind of law before, so they dismiss it. Once that was done, the Texas Indian Commission superintendent decided to protest this to the Parks and Wildlife in order to like protest the citation, like, you know, like this shouldn't have happened, what the hell, like mm. don't make sure it doesn't happen again. So the executive director of the Texas Parks and Wildlife Department asked the attorney general for an opinion about their authority to enforce these laws on the, the reservation. So the question before the attorney general was a narrow question, and it was literally just, do the Texas Fish and Game laws, can they be enforced on the reservation? And the attorney general took this narrow question and he used it as an opportunity to issue a broad and sweeping opinion. Mm, of course in which he concluded, among other things, that there was no valid claim that the Alabama Cushatis tribe's land was an Indian reservation, that there could be no trust relationship between Texas and the Alabama Cushata tribe, that they were merely an unincorporated association under Texas law with the same legal status as other private associations, so basically they have no legal protections, and essentially that the tribe's federal status was terminated in 1954, and after that they ceased to exist as a political body. So. The government of Texas agreed to take responsibility for this and to hold it in trust for the tribe. And then 30 years later, this attorney general just decides, no, not nah. a thing. Fuck you. We're just going to take that land and it doesn't belong to you anymore. That sounds very distinctly American. But what's cool is that because that happened, the Alabama Cushata tribe turned to Congress. And congressmen... Ronald Coleman and Charlie Wilson, who some of you may know from Charlie Wilson's War, which is a movie that came out a couple of years ago with Tom Hanks. Mm -hmm. Those two attorneys basically introduced the Restoration Act, restoring their federally recognized status to both the Alabama Cushata and also that tribe that's in El Paso, the Tiwa Indians. They introduced in 84, but there wasn't time to do anything about it, so they had to reintroduce in 85. And... It was, the act was passed by both the House and the Senate in 85, in 86, sorry. But 
Texas Senator Phil Graham <clears throat> asked Senate President Robert Dole to vitiate or cancel the passage of the act, even after it was passed. And he claimed that the request was driven by the need to understand the potential cost of the bill. And so it was canceled. And so they had to do it again in 87. And they passed it again, both the House and the Senate in 87. And this time, Graham dropped his opposition because he got the information he wanted about how much it was going to cost, apparently. And so it went through. So in 87 is when these two tribes were once again federally recognized and given their tribal lands. The Kickapoo Indians, meanwhile, the third ones, they were not part of this. They were never federally recognized in the first place, so they never had the, were part of this agreement with Texas. They were basically struggling all along to get recognized. They actually got recognized in 1983 or 85. That was... Not a lot of information about that. I'm, so. gr I'm grossed out by the concept of us recognizing people who were here. <laughs> right. It's like um, for the sake of power and acquisition, this dehumanization erasure process happened. And it was all about acquiring land and acquiring power. And it disgusts me that these humans were not seen whatsoever in service to that. That's just disgusting to me. Yeah, but I mean, the fact that it was still happening as recently as 30 While years we ago. While were babies. Yeah, it's crazy. Like, we're still doing this shit of canceling out the agreements that we have with them, and it's just disgusting. Yeah. Well, these are really neat stories. Like, Pooja, you went half into the story of the Hopi, and then you also included some historical bullshit Anju, you were all historical bullshit. That was like so much historical bullshit. Okay, it's my turn. I poured myself a drink because this has been really hard to listen to sober, ladies. Like it's, it's horrifying. It's, it's wonderful in a sense that we're giving identity and humanity to these tribes by studying them and studying the history surrounding uh, their story. But it's also, it just, we were shoved down the throat with like America imagery of this being this great land and we're not confronting the entire story. So when you're not confronting the entire story of a nation, we're not being real as a country. And so if we don't even know who we are, we're not being real. And I just think that it leaves room for further dehumanization. Well, and one of the things, I, we have a video to share with everybody uh, that was done, what is his name, Dylan? By Dylan Marin. Yes, and, you know, he pulls out a box of basically the whole thing is an exercise and the gifts America gave to Native Americans. It was, like, it was unboxing uh, mis crimes mistreatment. against yeah, Native mistreatment Americans. Of Americans. Yes, and, it, and the things he pulled out of there were based on, I would say, fables and tales we're all aware of. The right. poison blanket, the alcoholism, the dirty water. You know, those are things we know about. And what we're discussing here is intrinsic, insular, and insidious acts perpetrated since putting foot on this continent. Well, this is on the tail end of our last episode where we said... Fuck you, Christopher Columbus. That's the best I can do. Uh, anyway, so very nice. like 
Fuck. Fuck you, Cece. <laughs> anyway, so I decided to look up the Taino, which is the indigenous tribe uh, that when Christopher Columbus got lost, he found these people. These are indigenous that are local to the Caribbean. And up until the 15th century, they occupied the lands that we now know as Cuba, Trinidad, Jamaica, and uh, Haiti and the Dominican Republic. Uh, in the Dominican Republic and Haiti, they were known as uh, Lucayans uh, that spoke the Taino language. And even these words um, like were taken from Taino language, and I'll talk about that more in a second. But uh, Aiti in Taino means land of high mountains. And even though the French word Haiti was how the country was named, uh, there's some, there's a link there. These were originally Mesoamericans that moved into the Caribbean region from the land now known as South America. Sure, it wasn't called that back then. They had their conflicts, you know, there's always a conflict, and that group was called the Caribs. Uh, not the Crips, the Caribs. Not the Caribs, the Caribs. <laughs> there were five Taino chiefdoms when Fuckface arrived, and they had, there were five Taino chiefdoms. There's thousands of people within all of these areas where these chiefs dwelled. There, even the Spanish colonies that we know the names of within uh, Cuba, they have Taino names. So like Havana. Mm -hmm. Cuba itself was also Taino, at like, but there's kind of a disagreement about where the word came from. Either Cubao, which means fertile land is abundant, or Coabana, which means great place. Thousands of people lived here. So something that you ought to know about history is that Spaniards didn't bring women the Hispaniola women, Dominican Republic Haitian women, they were raped and taken for trade. And you'll understand why that's such an atrocity in just a moment, uh, other than it being a plain atrocity. Oh it's, even more, atrocity. it's even more of an atrocity after I tell you more about them. Um, they, this created mestizo children, and um, I think the word is mesi, mestizaje, which means racial and cultural mixing. This is part of the reason why people can still identify as Taino because um, there, even though the Taino went extinct, there was still descendants. They were dusky. Yeah, this is <laughs> this came down from the Taino. If you weren't killed by warfare or enslavement that was really harsh, you were killed by the smallpox in the Taino community, 90% in fact. Um, from infectious diseases that, of which they had no immunity. They had no immunity from. Um, there was only 500 Taino left after thousands and thousands and thousands of Taino went extinct. There was only 500 Taino left after 50 years from the moment Fuckface stepped foot on their land. So there's thousands of partial descendants. According to the U.S. Census, there's about a little over 9,000, I want to say... 9,000 people or so identify as Taino. And this is 
of course, a descendant thing and, and an identifying thing. There were commoners and there were nobles within this tribe. There were male chiefs and they were advised by priests uh, and healers, which were known as bohiques. I talked earlier about words that we know that came from the Taino language. There are words that we know from the Taino language like, guess if you can tell me what this is. Hamaka. Hammock. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. I was that's like, a, no, no, that's cool. This is pretty cool. <laughs> Took me way too long. Ka- kanoa. Canoe. Canoe. Hurricane. Hurricane. Tobacco. <laughs> Cancer stick. <laughs> um, batata. Potato. Potato, right. So a lot of these uh, derived from the Taino language. I said that was pretty cool. Um, can we talk about the ladies? English gave us Benefer. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thanks, English language. Um, the dumbed down. <laughs> so I, I want to talk about Taino women because I was blown away by them. And the reason why the it's not just horrible that these women were raped and enslaved and poorly treated. There's a reason why the men hated them so much. And I've got to bring this up. Taino women were skilled in agriculture. If you want to know what they kind of looked like, they had bangs and long hair. So if you're currently rocking that trend, um, not to say it couldn't have existed elsewhere, but, you know, bangs, long hair, bangs, braids, Taino women. Women lived with other women and children apart from the men. So Puja, the feminist commune, existed. We're going to start it back. Yeah. <laughs> but no children. <laughs> We're going to start it back without the children. That's right. Yeah. Men lived apart from women and women had control over their lives. How about that? Wow. This is back in centuries and centuries and centuries ago. So this just, it just further proves that. We don't even have that now. Yeah. The patriarchy was that. We don't even have that now. Yeah. The patriarchy was created and the patriarchal stories within religion were created for the diminishing of women. That's just, it, this just screams that this existed bef- like before anybody even knew the word feminism, you know? So feminism. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Women decided when sex would happen. They wow. decided sexual contact. When the, never, yeah, <laughs> when the, when or like, okay, you're only good to me now. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I just love that they have they were so empowered. I'm just kind of bites off my short story idea I told y'all about. Okay, <laughs> I mean they were ahead of they were so ahead of us, and we're talking centuries and centuries before any technology even existed. Women had power, so this is pretty amazing. The conquistadores that came here and raped them. They thought that the women were macho. So they were such, there was such toxic masculinity going on back then, not that it has gone away at all. They couldn't handle the idea that women were empowered. And, and of course they had to destroy that. And they had to destroy that. There was record of them viewing the women as macho. And that's only because the women had agency. They couldn't handle it. This is also a matrilineal society, just like yours, uh, your tribe, the Hopi that you mentioned, Pooja. Each person is identified. <laughs> They're by just the crying right now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, try not to try not to cry. But like the natives were way fucking ahead of all of us as far as women being in charge. Each person is identified by the mother's lineage yeah, and chasing money. Right, mm-hmm. o- women owned property. 
And this is the exact opposite of the patrilineal descent system, which we are all familiar with here in now known as America. Which is the reason a lot of churches don't have female priests and priests weren't allowed to get married because property passed through like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Patriarchy. Here's even more interesting. When children are born, uncle's kinship to the children was more important than the relationship of the children to the biological father. Maternal uncle. Right, the maternal uncle. Also interesting, there was some polygamy, but not in the kind of polygamy that we know where only the man is served. I don't hear any stories about women having tons of husbands. This is... I've heard of at least one tribe where that is still true, actually. Okay, that's a tribe, though. I'm talking about polygamy as it existed within the Mormon uh, religion... Joe, what is his name? Joseph Smith, whatever. Mm-hmm. This, this, oh, uh, po- yeah. yeah, this polygamy that existed, it was um, not just with men, it, it, women could take more than one husband. And chiefs had like 30 spouses. Um, men, I'll talk about the men a little bit. Men, um, the, the cool thing about women is women handled um, agriculture. And they handled, this is like, the way that people sustain themselves. Women handled all of that shit. I saw a lot of, I saw a lot of that yesterday when I was reading about Native American tribes. I was kind of reading, there's a a website um, about Native American languages, but they had links for each of the different tribes. And a lot of them were like, the men were the hunters and the women were in charge of the agriculture. Yeah. Like women were in charge and they, (laughs) I'm so glad I'm drinking because this is really hard to take. Like, Women handled shit. And so I I have more to say about that. Okay, so men did do stuff. They Mm -hmm. fished and hunted. They made nets uh, and ropes from cotton and palm. They made, I think the people made dugout canoes. And these dugout canoes could fit, on average, about 15 to 20 people. But they came in forms that could fit two people to 150 people. They knew how to take care of themselves in other words. And I think that a lot of times, um, Aboriginal or Indigenous tribes are are seen and viewed by the mainstream eye as these people that couldn't handle anything because they were too simple. They didn't have sails and a deck. They had an open canoe that housed 250 people. Yeah. Also, how big were those trees? Yeah, no shit. (laughs) Exactly. Or they knew how to build. It's the Moana ships. Yeah. Without the sails. You know. Yeah, Yeah, but for a dugout canoe, I assume it's a single tree. Yeah, because there were nails. Yeah. They were smelting back then. I mean... We I don't I didn't read too much into the construction of it, but like they could build large canoes. That's, That's pretty crazy. insane. Now <clears throat> they were naked. Um, the yes. only person yeah. So like they they didn't go hiding their bodies. Body wasn't a thing of shame like it is in say Christianity. Your naked body was your naked body, and it, it was just your body, and it's not something. You know what I mean? Anyway, so like um, the only time anyone was cl- had any cloth on them would be if a woman was married, she would wear something called a nagua, which was a sort of apron, what we would know as an apron, but not like with doilies and shit on the edge or anything like that. It was something that they had that was specific to their culture. After marriage, that's something that they might wear. After marriage? After marriage. Oh, so. she taken. Her punani, you cannot look at it. Yeah, yeah that's what can. that sounds like. <laughs> punani, take it. Yeah, so. <laughs> You're funny. This was a fisherman culture because of the lack of larger game in the land. So on the in, further inland, it was more agriculture heavy, but there was fishing. 
oftentimes, I know you love hearing about food because you're a foodie, Pooja, they would make bread out of root crops. They would ground the root and make bread out of it. Pone. <laughs> <laughs> they grew squash, beans, peppers, peanuts, and pineapples, tobacco, pumpkins, cotton, and these were all grown around the houses just like modern day, you know, people who have their own individual farming going on. There were also naturally, um, nat- natural to the land was palm nuts, guavas, and uh, zamia roots. I think I'm reading that right. Collected from the wild. So, a little bit about their food. I thought you'd be interested. Um, I love religion and spirituality stories as well. They worshipped zemis, which are known, I think the best way we can describe them were spirits or ancestors. Um, not necessarily gods, although that's something you can kind of maybe identify it as. Um, but spirits or ancestors. So there were several different major spirits. There are two, sorry, two major spirits and ancestors. It was um, Yukon, which was the spirit of Kosovo, one of the crop, their main crop, and uh, the spirit of the sea. And then there was Atabe, which is the mother of Yukahu. Yukahu, sorry, that's the word. I was like, Yukon? Yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> Yukahu is uh, the spirit of Kosovo, one of their main crops, and spirit of the sea. And Atabe is the mother of Yukahu, which is the spirit of the moon, uh, fresh water, and fertility. And there were several other minor spirits and ancestors that were related to the process of life, creation, and the earth, of curing, curing from illness, culture, rain, and fair weather, natural disasters, like was known as Huracan. And then there was a spirit dedicated to land of the dead. Zemis were also, that Zemi is also the word for the physical representation of these spirits or ancestors. So you would have small figures or you would have Zemi petroglyphs, which are rock carvings. Mm -hmm. So you would see them, uh, these uh, petroglyphs carved into rocks in streams on Oh, like cave stalagmites, which I think is pretty amazing, and ball courts. Can I tell you more about ball courts? Yes, yes, before, please. Before you get to that, I just want to say I hate cassava so much I cannot <laughs> believe it's worshipped anywhere in the world. <laughs> so they had a ball game called Bate, and this was played mostly by men, but women also played it too. And in the class, in the classic Taino they were used for conflict resolution. So <laughs> ball games, if you had a... Instead quip, of war. Like, yeah, if you had a little... Settle it on the court. If you had a tip, <laughs> if you had a tip in the community, shut your face. We're going to have a ball game. <laughs> I, I don't want to hear what you have to say anymore, and I don't want your facts anymore. We're going to do this ball game. So it was used for conflict resolution, which I thought you would think is super interesting. That is awesome. When and Miranda told me this, I was just like, I'll fight somebody over dismantling the Electoral College today. <laughs> <laughs> ball game against white supremacy, because we would have all the black athletes, yeah. and we would take your asses down. So anyway. Anyway, POCs against white supremacy. It's know. just Rafa Nadal and Serena just you, hunking you, balls. Yeah. You'd be dead. You'd be dead. Like, <laughs> I wouldn't want to serve from any POC athlete that is like amazing. Anyway, so you would get served. So these ball games like would happen, and it's really central to the Taino culture, which I thought would you, you would think is really cool. So also, just so you know, 
a little bit more about the village itself. Like in the center of the village, there would be a plaza where there'd be social activities, festivals, religious rituals and ceremonies, much like what happens in our cities. And it's just no different. We're talking centuries ago. So you're saying when people happened upon them from the European places, they were a society already and they didn't have to bring their... Uh, yeah. They didn't need to be civilized? Yeah, so they, yeah, they just, did not need to learn how to be civilized. They had they already art had their own, culture, religion. They had everything that oh, we have. I see. Laws? They had all They that? had laws and everything. A uh, means to travel among Women the were empowered. and yeah. sustain themselves. Why the fuck? <laughs> Women were empowered and they were their own person and they had their own agency. Right. And, yeah. they, had a, and they had a way of dealing with their own conflicts so they didn't have to go to war with each other. Yeah. Well, we corrupted them. Speak. I say we, but, you know, no, speaking, I didn't do anything. Tops, war-wise, <laughs> tops, they had wooden clubs. That's it. Do you, I think that they could have, they, I just don't, I don't know, and I would have to do more research, and I'm very, very interested in doing more research. They just, they had the Caribs that they were in conflict with, but it wasn't like, it just didn't seem like a deadly culture, like we can associate colonialism with. It just wasn't deadly. And so, oh, I... anyway, yeah, that's why I'm drinking. So, like, okay, well, right. it wasn't as savage as any no. of the American depictions. And white people were just like, oh, but they fight all the time. But they make up and they seem to be cool the afterwards. Fight that's is weird. a relative term. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, fuck you, Christopher <laughs> Columbus. Fuck you, CC. Boom, 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 boom. Basically, the savages, the only savages were the people that came in and raped them and killed them. Winners write history, right? Mm-hmm. Winners write history. Right. They, That's do, it what Dan, wrong, they Dylan, do it wrong all the damn time. Dylan Marin <laughs> said that in his video, Winners Write History. But, you know, um, we didn't just want to talk about this because we wanted to pay homage to Native American Heritage Month. We wanted to also consider the story of Thanksgiving itself. There's The imagery was given to all children in, in our American schools of you know native tribes sitting down with the the wampon was it anju has got the goods as far as what historically (laughs) happened yeah for the facts we'll turn it over to anju for the facts we're going to turn it over to anju now okay (laughs) the anchor desk is drunk i love it (laughs) i love that that's my job to come in with the facts there was an actual first thanksgiving meal it's not entirely a myth and it's actually the myth is mostly accurate but there's a lot of context of course Mm. Um, the Native American tribe that that were part of this that first Thanksgiving dinner were the Wampanoags in uh, Massachusetts, and they're the ones that we got loan words like pumpkin, moccasin, uh, the name of the state of Massachusetts. All of that <laughs> comes from them. What do we give them in return, though? Like beads and, and alcoholism? Uh, death, a lot of death. <laughs> <laughs> Bullshit. Yeah. Um, of course, Thanksgiving itself was not really celebrated until the Civil War. It was Abraham Lincoln who made it a national holiday, and it was because he was trying to figure out a way to, like, you know, in a time of, of people fighting against their, their own, it was a way to tr- tell this great story about people who were different coming together for a meal. Yay! Yeah. Well-intentioned. Right, yes. So there were about 80 to 90 Wampanoag Indians at the meal, and there were, like, 50 pilgrims. And the version of the story, there's a video that we'll share, but the version of the story I heard as told by an actual member of the Wampanoag tribe was that 
I guess it was the first good harvest that the pilgrims had had since they'd arrived, and they were excited, so they were celebrating, and they were shooting off their guns to celebrate, which sounds very southern to me. <laughs> um, and the Native Americans basically were like, what the fuck? Who's shooting? What's going on? And so they mounted up and went to go figure out what the hell was happening, and they were like, oh, you guys are just having a party? Okay, that's fine. And they ended up staying. So... They weren't exactly the best of friends, as we like to portray them. They were kind of tentatively allied. There was obviously a lot of mistrust and wariness, but they, they were allied. Um, it wasn't just a dinner. It was actually three days. There were no women or children. It was just the men folk, of course. Context that's not so rosy about this situation. Part of the reason the pilgrims were able to actually settle in the Massachusetts is that before they arrived, um, European traders who'd been there before them left the gift that all Europeans seem to leave Syphilis. to Native Americans. <laughs> It was probably smallpox or something. Smallpox. But they left some sort of disease that wiped out a large chunk of the tribes and left a lot of it empty and barren. In fact, where the pilgrims actually settled was literally on top of what had been an abandoned Wampanoag town or village that they had abandoned because everybody died. Okay. So that's cool. That explains Boston. On top of that, <laughs> on top of that, the pilgrims basically built their city on, on graves. But they also robbed those graves when they first arrived because they were under the impression that being that North America was south of where they were in Europe, that it would be warm all the time. And they arrived right before winter and were completely unprepared. And so they ended up having to steal food literally from the Wampanoags by robbing their fields and their graves in order to survive. And I even, don't have enough alcohol in my cup for this story. Instead of asking, instead of asking. Yeah, no, they just took it. Even after grave robbing and um, raiding of fields, half of them died. The pilgrims. Half of the pilgrims still died because they were that unprepared. Oh, because you were in corpse clothes? <laughs> <laughs> well, and here's the thing. The peace that led to the first Thanksgiving was driven by trade and tribal rivalries. Before the Wampanoag suffered losses from disease, they had driven Europeans away. Oh, now they were weaker, and they were much weaker than their hated rival- adversaries, the Narragansett. And so they were sort of forced to create an alliance with the Europeans in order to kind of strengthen them strengthen themselves yeah not necessarily that they were um that they were looking to defend themselves against the narragansett but just that they were in a weaker position and they needed allies to sort of strengthen their position and so that's what what led to this alliance in the first place we talk about we're going to talk about barbarians we're going to talk about barbarians (laughs) we're going to talk about barbarians a lot in these first couple of full episodes but i've got to say the barbarians were the colonialists but this I don't part, think that's argued with. No, but no. Like, I just don't. But, but, but when it comes to 4th of July, we're going to be like, America. But like, seriously, this country was created on a shitty, 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 shitty fucking foundation. And True. on the backs and labor of stolen people. <laughs> like, America it's doesn't hard. belong to anybody Pooja but is, to minorities. Pooja is uncomfortably <laughs> laughing. Like, it says, like, you don't know what sound to make with your body. Like, my Pooja, teeth are clenched yes, I'm gonna because scream I told her she can't bang the table uh, <laughs> due to the microphones being put on the table in order for us to talk so okay. we really have nothing to hit while we're Let, talking I'll, I'll end with this one last t- tidbit which is actually kind of funny um, the Europeans were valuable trading partners for the Wampanoag in the area because they traded steel knives and axes for beaver pelts which was plentiful in New England and which the Wampanoag essentially considered worthless. And here's the quote. It's a little like somebody comes to your door and says, I'll give you gold if you give me a rock. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, sure, whatever. 
That's why they were considered valuable trading partners. But then they made, they gave them things that kept them warm during the winter. So the fittest didn't survive. The warm survived. And then look what happened. Mm. Should have traded chipmunk pelts. I want to throw up just like at hearing all of this. But like there's the origin of the Thanksgiving story. Thanks, Anju. But like well, how, do we ser- how do we celebrate Thanksgiving now without wanting to throw up in our mouths a little? I mean, I think there's worse stuff after that but we're just talking about the first thing yeah, right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> i'm well, sorry well, that's now, more uncomfortable I mean, laughter i yeah. mean but if you're like a native american and i've heard this um before from a lot of native americans that i've heard speak thanksgiving to them is just a reminder it's mm-hmm. a of everything yeah of everything they've been through of you know the attrition the marginalization the extinction Absolutely. You know, and it's more of a remembrance of what has been lost. That's and literally why I knew the Alcatraz story, because I was reading an article about Native Americans, and there was this group that goes to Alcatraz for Thanksgiving every year to remember what they've, what have, they've lost. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and so how do, you, as you learn these things, how do you, like you're saying, make peace with the version of Thanksgiving that was shoved down our throat? Here's how I do it. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, we're all mental health advocates I, the way I look at it is we have to create it into something new. The tradition has been created so that you get together with your family, right? Mm-hmm. You share a meal with your family, right? And then you practice gratitude. Gratitude is the antidote to the fear of uncertainty. That is Brene Brown. Again, I talk about her a lot. But if you practice gratitude, your uh, creating a sense of plentifulness within yourself Mm -hmm. this doesn't have to be related to the history of things at all Mm -hmm. but if you want to make it something for yourself you're spending time with people we're wired to be with people so you can have gratitude even for the you know even for the very having other people in your life and this doesn't have to mean relatives that means any people people who are having friendsgiving people who are having thanksgiving um with people that are just in their city people who are away from their families, people who are spending their Thanksgiving away from toxic families uh, where you don't have to celebrate with people you don't feel healthy or safe around. I think that Thanksgiving could be now officially a mental health thing where you have people, you're grateful for those people and the things that you have in your life where you get to be mindful about what you have. Uh, But also 100% highly aware of what's going on and I think that we could turn, personally, I'm going to turn this time of year into a who can I give humanity to? And I think it has to start with the natives. I, the way I reconcile Thanksgiving, being an immigrant myself, is I don't reckon, I hate turkey. <laughs> like, I barely stand mashed potatoes. So to me, Thanksgiving was never what it was, what? What it was meant to be, what it was portrayed as. I look at Thanksgiving as a time to explore food because, kind of like what you were saying, Miranda, I show gratitude towards the people I would break br- bread with on Thanksgiving throughout the year. So to me, Thanksgiving is just what, uh, once, a, you know, once a month Sunday dinner at my mom's house. I don't... I don't necessarily see the big hullabaloo. What I, I do appreciate what Lincoln tried to do, and that's the vein in which I will try to take Thanksgiving forward, is a national day of feasting. And if you look at other countries who they say they're secular, but there are national days of feasting that align to their religion. We have Christmas, and uh, but in America we have Fourth of July, which is our summer feast, and we have Thanksgiving, which is our winter feast, and that's how right. I'm going to choose to look at it. 
Well, right. and that's the thing, too. I mean, we have this whole story about Thanksgiving and the you know, Native Americans of the pilgrims, but really it's an autumn festival, which is a, a tradition that spans cultures. It's, it's a time of giving thanks for the bounty of your harvest before you go into winter. So right. that's, that's something we can all celebrate. We can all recognize a time of giving thanks for what we have, you know, and, and yeah, reconnecting with the people that you care about. It doesn't have to be about this. So we just talked about the history of, you know, that first Thanksgiving as it relates to Native Americans. And we'll have a second part of this episode to talk to talk to you about immigrant Thanksgiving. But for right now, we want to just encourage everybody to, again, seek out knowledge about those that came before us and really came before us, not just stop at what you think your heritage is, but go beyond that because the world interacted with each other just like the world interacts today. So happy Native American Heritage Month. Thank you for learning with us. See you next time. See you next time. Happy Thanksgiving.